Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. In January of this year, hundreds of doctors, nurses, scientists, and other health professionals wrote an open letter to Spotify calling on the streaming media platform to implement a misinformation policy in the wake of controversy over commentary on podcaster Joe Rogan's December 31st show, which included promotion of an anti-vaccine and anti-mandate rally by discredited scientist Robert Malone. The rally, which took place on January 23rd in Washington, D.C., featured anti-vaccine personalities including Malone and was attended by conspiracy theorists and far-right extremists. As a result of mounting criticism, Spotify was forced to issue a set of announcements about what it would do to combat misinformation, including adding content advisories to podcast episodes about COVID and publicly publishing more specific platform rules. To many observers, it was all too familiar. A tech company forced to admit it was woefully unprepared to deal with the fallout from content moderation issues. Daniel Eck, the company's co-founder and chief executive, eventually issued a statement saying, quote, We know we have a critical role to play in supporting creator expression while balancing it with the safety of our users. He went on to say, In that role, it is important to me that we don't take on the position of being content censor while also making sure that there are rules in place and consequences for those who violate them. But the controversy didn't stop there. As Rogan drew more scrutiny, his history of making racist statements and hosting far-right personalities came to the fore. Rogan was forced to apologize for dozens and dozens of instances where he used racial slurs, in addition to a range of other racist comments, such as comparing a movie theater in a black neighborhood in Philadelphia to Planet of the Apes, and wondering about the differences between the brains of black people and white people. Right around the same time that the Rogan controversy was commanding headlines, the newsletter platform Substack issued a manifesto of sorts on its views on content moderation. Its co-founders used the essay to differentiate themselves from the social media platforms while pointing out that the company seeks to take a hands-off approach to moderation. Ultimately, the Substack founders wrote, We think the best content moderators are the people who control the communities on Substack, the writers themselves. On our platform, each publication is its own dominion, with readers and commenters who have gathered there through common interests. And readers, in turn, choose which writers to subscribe to and which communities to participate in. As the meta-platform, we cannot presume to understand the particularities of any given community or to know what's best for it. A month later, the Washington Post's Elizabeth Dwoskin published an article with the headline, Conspiracy Theorists, Banned on Major Social Networks, Connect with Audiences on Newsletters and Podcasts. Newsletter company Substack is making millions off anti-vaccine content, according to estimates. The article cites research from the nonprofit Center for Countering Digital Hate. Just before the Post published its stories, The Substack co-founders published another post titled, Society Has a Trust Problem. More Censorship Will Only Make It Worse. In it, they wrote that, quote, The more that powerful institutions attempt to control what can and cannot be said in public, the more people there will be who are ready to create alternative narratives about what's true, spurred by a belief that there's a conspiracy to suppress important information. To talk about these issues of speech, editorial intervention, content moderation, and democracy, I invited two expert commentators. Bridget Todd and Elizabeth Spires to the podcast. Bridget Todd is the creator and host of the award-winning technology and culture podcast, There Are No Girls in the Internet, and communications director for Ultraviolet, 
a gender justice advocacy organization working to build a feminist internet. Bridget wrote a great piece for The Nation titled, It's Not Just Joe Rogan, The Entire Digital Space is Rotten. In it, she says, until the platforms that profit from hate take responsibility for their actions, the problem will not go away, and I encourage you to read that piece. Elizabeth Spires is a writer, NYU journalism school professor, political commentator, and digital strategist. She is also the former editor-in-chief of The New York Observer and was the founding editor of Gawker. Elizabeth wrote a trio of columns on Medium addressing the issues raised by the Rogan controversy and the Substack statements. Here's Bridget and Elizabeth. My name is Bridget Todd. Um, I use she, her pronouns. I am the communications director with Ultraviolet, a national gender justice advocacy organization, and the host and creator of iHeartRadio's technology and culture podcast, There Are No Girls on the Internet. Uh, I'm Elizabeth Spires. I'm the founder of a political consulting firm called The Insurrection that we will soon rebrand. I also teach in the journalism school at NYU, and I'm a freelance writer. We're now more than a month and a half, maybe even two months out from the beginnings of this controversy around Joe Rogan uh, and his podcast. His December 31st podcast, I believe, was the one that sparked the latest round of controversy. And both of you have written on the topic about what it tells us about the information ecosystem more broadly. So I want to kind of just start by getting you to reflect on, on this debate that's been playing out about Rogan, Spotify, uh, speech over the last uh, eight weeks and uh, get your first take. Uh, Maybe Bridget, we'll start with you. Yeah. My first take is that it is really funny to watch this play out in real time where these big deal tech executives at Spotify seem to be really surprised to find out the actual content of this podcast creators. They paid millions and millions of dollars to host on their platform. Um, Yeah, I think for me, my biggest takeaway is that we have unfortunately created a digital media ecosystem where liars, scammers, and people who are trafficking in the most extreme uh, ideologies and lies are the ones who are handsomely rewarded, uh, amplified, and incentivized. And we need to change our media landscape where those are not the folks who are taking up the most oxygen in the room. So there there are a few reasons why Rogan is in uh, hot water with the general public and, and not so much with Spotify. You know, the first element is that I think it you know came to light in December or so that he had been either wittingly or, or intentionally spreading COVID misinformation at a specific guest on who's a well-known anti-vaxxer. And I think that was the first point at which Spotify got any major blowback for licensing the rights to uh, Rogan's show. But of course, you know, when, when you put Rogan's show under a microscope, there, there are so many other problems with it. Um, and, and, you know, to echo Bridget, Spotify doesn't seem to have done very much due diligence on what they were buying. Um, they've tried to remedi- remedy that a little bit by deleting some of the more problematic episodes where Rogan has said things that were racist and transphobic. But you know, that sort of meager effort has just led to more people really digging into prior episodes. And of course, the, the right has been embracing all of this as a free speech issue, which they've come to sort of define as uh, the ability to say whatever you want, whenever you want on any platform, uh, which is not what free speech principles are about. You know, they're about whether the government can intervene to uh, censor what you're saying. Um, but nonetheless, it, it's turned Rogan into a kind of cause celeb for 
right wingers who want to be able to frankly say offensive things with, with no real repercussions. On some level, not just right wingers. I mean, it's been interesting to see who's come out of the woodwork to support Rogan. I don't know if you've you've kind of noticed that either of you. Uh, there have been some significant voices on the left that have defended uh, him or uh, kind of used this as an opportunity to critique the you know general concern uh, in the in the media about misinformation. You know, I understand why there are people who view sort of this after the fact editing of, of Rogan as maybe a slippery slope. You know, they they sort of insist that this could be applied to things that are actually useful for society. But I, I just find that argument disingenuous because Spotify is a private company. You know, they do have terms of service just like everybody else in the sense that private companies are allowed to choose what they're going to publish every private company in existence is a censor in that case. You know, I wrote a thing on Medium just suggesting that, you know, Spotify edit Rogan, which would be exactly what would happen in any normal corporate podcast, uh, because they're acting as a publisher when they they buy exclusive rights to distribute him. And even that was met with uh, some Rogan fans in my comments uh, yelling at me about free speech and not realizing, uh, you know, for their part that if you, I wrote this on Medium, that they, in fact, were publishing their comments on a platform that also has a terms of service agreement and restricts what they can publish. Uh, so there's there's just people are not seemingly aware of the ways in which speech is restricted all the time. You know, you can't say you're going to kill the president. The government will restrict that. But private companies restrict things like hate speech. So it's not unreasonable for Spotify to say, you know, we're we're acting as a publisher, so we're responsible on some level for whatever Rogan's putting out there. And, you know, maybe we should edit him. I mean, you know, editing generally makes these shows better anyway. <laughs> it would have the added benefit of increasing the, the quality, I think. So when they, they throw their hands up and say, we, we can't really do anything about it, that's a choice, you know? And if, if they decided that they were gonna edit Rogan, there's plenty of precedent for that. that that's most professionalized podcasts. So, you know, I think the real issue is that Spotify doesn't want to alienate Rogan's audience who sometimes likes it when he says racist and transphobic things, uh, or they're on board with the COVID misinformation because they they believe it. Bridget, you've connected this back to the broader information ecosystem and to the incentives in it. Yeah, I mean, I think Elizabeth is exactly right. I think that, you know, well, first of all, I think Spotify is in, Spotify and Joe Rogan are in hot water. They got in hot water initially over the COVID misinformation, um, which is, you know, rightly so. But people have been pointing out the ways that his show has been trafficking in lies about trans folks, people of color, women for a very long time. And so it's interesting to me that the COVID misinformation, like that was the thing that really stuck. And I think for me, as someone who really does a lot of work in the misinformation space, I think it really goes back to the fact that whether it's lies about COVID or vaccines or lies about trans people and their bodies or women in their bodies, um, you know, all of it is a threat to public health. All of it is a form of, of health misinformation or medical misinformation. And so I think it really demonstrates that, you know, trafficking and lies about people and about our bodies and about science are all kind of connected. They're, they're sort of a thorny 
a thorny ball of yarn that if you, if you traffic in one, it's odds are you're trafficking in another. And so for me, it just demonstrates that we have a lot more work to do to really illustrate to people that, yes, lying about vaccines and COVID is wrong. Lying about trans people is wrong. Lying about people of color is wrong. Lying about women is wrong. Using your platform to amplify those lies is bad business. And it says, especially for Spotify, you know, incentivizing it, creating a system where you say, listen, we have so many interesting, thoughtful creators on our platforms. Uh, those people are not going to be amplified as much as somebody like Joe Rogan who traffics and lies. They're not going to be paid nearly as much as somebody who traffics and lies. I think that Spotify really needs to take a step back and think about what what they are incentivizing and what kind of culture they're they're contributing to when they set that kind of a precedent. I don't feel like that's something that happens in a vacuum. And Spotify is such a big, powerful company that, that the way that they do business really can have ramifications for the entire you know audio landscape. And so I just think that Spotify is trying to play big and play small at the same time. They're trying to say like, oh, well, we're just a little podcast company. We can't sense, we can't, you know, be responsible for editing Joe Rogan. We don't even know what he publishes. He doesn't even know what he says half the time. And also try to have this big footprint in the audio landscape. Um, it really, for me, just kind of can't be both. I want to just uh, kind of point out a couple of similarities between the approach that Spotify CEO Daniel Eck has taken uh, and another company that you've written about as well, Elizabeth, recently Substack, you know, this idea that uh, silencing Joe is not the answer, um, which to some extent is kind of straw man. Um, I don't think anybody was suggesting that Joe Rogan should be summarily taken off of uh, Spotify or off the internet or uh, otherwise kind of completely silenced. Um, well, there's sort of a similar vein that runs through this recent statement from uh, the spot of, uh, from Substack executives, um, this idea that uh, censorship is the danger that we have to uh, contend with out there. Yeah, I thought the, the Substack statement was even more absurd than what Spotify said. Substack's PR person did a long Twitter thread you know, defending their decision to leave you know, controversial stuff on the platform. And they, they made an argument that just kind of defies credulity. It's that by having misinformation on the platform, it somehow increases reader trust because you're giving the reader some kind of option to determine whether something's true. And, you know, what we see, I mean, having worked in media for two decades now, <laughs> Uh, we have seen a big erosion in trust of the media, but it's it's very much tracked with trust, distrust in institutions generally. And, and we see that as a big problem. I mean, people don't trust the government. They don't trust uh, scientists, you know, and, and part of what the right has done strategically is to erode confidence in these institutions. Um, so when you look at the problem of people not trusting the media, it's not because people don't have access to a variety of types of information or a variety of viewpoints, it's because they, they just don't trust institutional media categorically. So in my experience, you know, people don't trust the media in a very sincere way if they think the media is lying to them or the media gets stuff wrong. So the idea that letting people get stuff wrong on Substack somehow enhances trust seems not just disingenuous to me, but backwards. Both Eck and the Substack folks seem to have this idea here around the the nature and the quality of debate. Um, the Substack folks write, we prefer a contest of ideas. We believe dissent and debate is important. We celebrate nonconformity. Eck wrote, you know, looking at this issue more broadly, it's critical thinking and open debate that powers real and necessary 
progress. Um, you know, that, I'm sure there are a lot of folks that are listening to this that would think that that sounds very, very reasonable. What specifically is sort of wrong with that line of reasoning in, in your point of view? I mean, I think uh, when we talk about productive debate, you know, there, there's a sort of assumption embedded in that, that everybody's using facts that are true, you know, and, and the whole problem with uh, misinformation or disinformation is that there's no guarantee that people really are capable of always triangulating on what's true and what isn't. So if you're, you're operating in a, in a sort of dialogue where one side is just misrepresenting reality, it's not really a debate in that case. You're litigating something, but it's, it's certainly not constructive, especially if you, the falsehoods become kind of memes and you, you end up spreading <laughs> more lies than, uh, than you began with. Uh, I think it's even worse Then you become a kind of vector for more disinformation. And that just has nothing to do with constructive debate. I'd love to add something to that. Um, one clip that really just sticks with me from Rogan is this kind of casual way it, where he is, he has a, a mixed race guest on, guest on and he's like, oh, you know, you're one parent, one of your parents is black, one of your parents is white. So you have the, the brain of a black man and the body of a, in the body of a white man. And he's like, you know, what's black brain is a different kind of brain. And he says it really casually and there's, there's absolutely no pushback. And, you know, when people say you should be, you know, responding to this with, with open debate and a, and, a, and a marketplace of ideas, I'm a black woman. How would I go, if somebody thinks, if we're starting off a conversation about whether or not I have a different brain in my head, that my physical makeup of, of my ability to understand and reason is at a different level, what kind of debate can we actually have? Like, we're not exactly as Elizabeth said, we're not having a conversation that is like where we can have a debate because we're just not starting in the same place. And so I really feel like that example, you know, how is one supposed to counter that? If, if that's our starting place, how can we even go to a place where we're going to get to, you know, common ground or that the, you know, a debate is going to be fruitful or effective or even a good use of my time. If it's like, okay, we're starting from a position where you don't even think I have the same brain as you. Yeah. It's, it's the point at which there, there are certain things that should not be up for debate and the, the essential full humanity of all people is, is one of them. Like there, there should be, there shouldn't be a debate about whether trans people are allowed to exist. So there's a, a bit of a, a, the way that people define what constitutes acceptable discourse uh, really varies and it varies heavily politically. You know, the right sort of wants a scenario where anything is acceptable discourse, especially when it comes to potentially disenfranchising women and minorities. That's a kind of permissiveness that just has no real constructive point. It doesn't lead to you know, a healthier marketplace of ideas, all it does is, is generally harms people. Um, and I do think that has to be taken into consideration when you're thinking about where to draw lines. And, you know, there are some areas where it's, there, there's not a hard line. And that's, that's why companies like Spotify opt first for just saying, we're not going to moderate, we're not going to make these decisions, because eventually they'll bump up against one where there's some gray area and people will disagree, you know, all over the place. But if you're going to act as a publisher, then you know what? That's that's part of the responsibility that comes with it. Some folks that have waded into this debate have talked about the kind of changing nature of veracity itself. The fact that you know one idea can go from fringe conspiracy theory through to you know accepted fact or at least entertained possibility 
over a period of time. Um, I noticed in Matt Iglesias's article or essay about the problem of misinformation, uh, where he titles it, the misinformation problem seems like misinformation. He, he addresses Rogan. He talks about how uh, some of Rogan's kind of what seemed like fringe ideas about uh, COVID, you know, ended up turning into um, kind of things that people would consider more, more closely. Um, so for instance, you know, about um, severe side effects of, of, of vaccines and things of that nature. So I, what he's kind of saying is that there's some value to what may seem like misinformation that when you, when you try to sort of stamp that out, that to some extent you might be, you know, setting yourself up for, for ultimately uh, failure. Um, I don't know what, how do you think of that line of, of, of argument when it comes to someone like Rogan? I think it's a little bit of a red herring because the things that people are, are objecting to are not claims he made over, you know, evolving what we all know to understand to be evolving science, you know, but when he hosted Robert Malone and Malone said something like, you know, I believe our elected officials are uh, hypnotizing everyone. And what we're looking at is just a, a kind of mass delusion. Uh, a reasonable person would hear that and say, that's that's nonsense. And Rogan kind of, you know, entertains the possibility that it's true. And so, you know, it's, it's one thing to kind of be reasonably skeptical that uh, we don't know everything yet and that science is always evolving. But when you hear something that's so insane that, you know, any reasonable person understands that it's not true and Rogan doesn't push back, you know, that's a problem because he's he's sort of implicitly endorsing it when he, uh, you know, nods long or suggests that it's plausible. Um, and that's very different from having a guest on who says something crazy and you, you actually push back and say, no, that's not true. Yeah, I've seen that argument so often in the Rogan conversation that, you know, he doesn't say these things. We'll have a guest on and the guest will say it and that, you know, he he's not acting as the expert. He's not saying to trust me. But, you know, as a podcaster, you decide who you want to have on your platform. You decide when someone says something on the show, you are making a choice whether to keep it in or cut it out. That's just how the medium works. And so this idea that he, you know, it's an interview show. He's not the expert. He's not positioning himself as the expert. By putting somebody on your platform, you are kind of endorsing what they have to say. And especially if they say something that is completely off the wall and you just nod and move on instead of challenging it or even pushing back in the slightest, which he almost never does, I think is a real problem. Um, and I also think this idea of, you know, the evolving, you know, the shape, like he talks about things that maybe at some point would have been considered a conspiracy theory, but now is it like, but, but science changes. It's like an issue where even a stopped clock is right twice a day, right? If I ranted about a topic that I have no idea about, I might stumble on a few things that were accurate, right? But that doesn't mean that it's it's valuable that the other 98% of what I said is complete BS just because I, I stumbled on a couple of things that maybe have some truth. That doesn't mean the entire thing is, is valuable or productive or, or a healthy way to, to think about discourse. So I want to switch gears in the conversation a little bit to look uh, out into the future. We've got another election cycle um, that's about to uh, hot up in the U.S. around the midterms. Um, I've been looking a lot at the polls around uh, January 6th and the 2020 election and the extent to which uh, folks in the Republican Party in particular have embraced the idea that the election was stolen, 
those views seem to be very persistent. They've held up, um, you know, more than a year since since the insurrection. Um, and to some extent, that's because, you know, political elites and media um, on the right have continued to promulgate those ideas, not always exactly the idea that that the election was stolen, but perhaps ideas that are adjacent to it, you know, that we should seriously consider the possibility that there was widespread fraud or that uh, Democrats are attempting to introduce reforms because they intend to uh, execute another fraud uh, in the upcoming cycle. Do you see a relationship between this Rogan saga and the upcoming uh, election cycle and, and how we'll have to think about how to handle things like the big lie? Well, I think one thing, I, I think a lot of Democrats in, in, in leadership really underestimate the extent to which right-wing media really shapes perception of Democrats at large. Uh, there's an assumption that you can sort of persuade a very partisan Republican that Democrats can do good things for them, but you sort of can't, if, if the people are already in a me media ecosystem that relentlessly tells them that Democrats are out to get them or that they can't be trusted. You know, you're just not in a position to have any kind of constructive debate where you you come to some common ground in that scenario. So, you know, we, we have a problem where leadership acknowledges that the Democratic brand is in trouble, but they kind of underestimate the extent to which that's not a good faith thing that happened. It's, it's you know, an intentional strategy on the part of right wing media. And, and it's very difficult to deprogram that. Yeah, and I would also, I completely agree. And I would also add that I think that is the point of, of this kind of disingenuousness and bad faith attacks. It gums up the works of legitimate discourse. And so you can't even have a substantive conversation about the issues about, you know, we like, I'm a, I'm a Democrat, but I have plenty of issues with the way the last couple of years have gone or the last year has gone. And we, I, we can't, I can't even have a, a, a substantive conversation about that because you know the gears of discourse have become so gummed up and we can't even have legitimate conversations anymore about actual issues you know and, and get to common ground and move forward and i think bad actors and hucksters and liars and people who profit off of those kinds of things that's what they're counting on that that benefits them and so it's really sad that we've gotten to this point that i think even people who would say like i'm a reasonable person who's interested in you know a debate about the issues doesn't see the ways that 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 is no longer really possible and that bad actors are profiting from that being you know, not possible. I mean, this is maybe a minor point, but the whole dialogue about whether Rogan has his own free speech rights is really depressing to me because it, it's a symptom of how little civics education we have in this country. The fact that otherwise intelligent people don't seem to understand that free speech applies to how the government intervenes and not how people make everyday decisions to to edit things or curate content uh, is, is depressing to me. <laughs> but but there things like this really bring that to the forefront. And, and yeah, that's that could be said of a million other civic issues, but it points to a, a deficiency we have in not just our educational system, but the way we talk to the electorate, I think. 
Yeah, that was such an interesting thing to, to watch play out, especially when Spotify took down, when those episodes of the show were removed and then Spotify put out a statement basically saying that Joe decided to remove them. And yet you still had people, even his own guests whose episode had been removed being like, oh, I'm being censored. And it's like, well, if Joe Rogan decides he doesn't want to have this episode up anymore and takes it down, is that censorship? Like it really, I, I wish I could sit down with these people and really get to the bottom of what they think censorship is, what they think is an attack on their free speech rights. You know, I think that you're absolutely right that it points to, to a real deep failure uh, in terms of something along the way of our, our media literacy and our civic education. Haven't we kind of got to the point though, where being quote unquote censored or canceled is a kind of badge for people? I mean, you have people like Dan Bongino who seem to really court getting removed from uh, YouTube or, or having Google take action against his site, um, really wanted that because it was actually part of a promotional campaign for his other activities and his efforts on other platforms. Does, is all of this just part of the business, part of the theater? Uh, I think for the right it is because part of you know what's what's going on there in terms of internal logic is if I can say whatever I want, no matter how offensive, then I'm exercising a type of power. You know, when, it, when I harm other people, I'm exercising a type of power. And they'll never, they'll never come right out and say that, but that, that's sort of what they're doing. You know, when they say, well, I want to be able to say trans people aren't human or whatever, and then wait to get the blowback. And then they sort of hold it up as a badge of honor just to sort of note that, uh, well, I did it and I got away with it. But, you know, how many times has anybody actually been canceled, especially on the right? You know, a lot of their audience is really built around the idea that they can say offensive things. That's, uh, you know, that was a common uh, thing that right wingers said about Trump. You know, they, they would say, oh, well, he speaks his mind. What they really mean is that he's willing to say things that are outside of the realm of acceptable discourse. And that's part of their brand. I would kill to be canceled in this way. Um, to get like a, a Netflix first look deal, you know, uh, you know, a, a cushy speaking tour, a hundred, like hundreds of millions of dollars to speak my mind. I, like if that's what being censored is, sign me up. You know, I would love that. Yeah, I mean, I think at this point it's just it's just blatant marketing, and, and I think like people who who cry about having been canceled, I think are are no are no longer even pretending that it's anything other than like a marketing strategy. So I completely agree. Um, I, I and it's it's it is interesting that I don't think that we have that same kind of culture on the left. I don't think that you could make this grand claim of being silenced or suppressed or censored and have that have that like boost your sales or boost your platform. But I think on the right, it's clear that it's a it's a it's an actual strategy. And and I guess that's what I mean when I say that we currently have a media landscape that incentivizes nonsense. It incentivizes you know, grifting and lying and being the loudest voice in the room. And we all lose when that's the case. When, when we, when someone who is a grifter or a bad actor knows they can get, you know, eyeballs and ear holes and money by grifting, that's a problem. And I think that we, we have that. All you have, you, all, all Dan Mangino has to do is continue to say that he is being silenced and that will, you know, increase his platform and build his brand. And that's a real problem. And some extent, that might be the thing that is a through line through all those guests that, uh, you know, Rogan has had to 
uh, strike from his his past category or you know catalog. It's not just the racism, but typically it's uh, it's the fact that those individuals who are to some extent monetizing their various uh, grievances. Absolutely. Um, I did an interview with um, this technologist, Ifoma Uzoma, who used to work at Pinterest. And she's this woman who um, really spearheaded medical misinformation being pulled from Pinterest or like way before COVID early on. And one of the things that she told me is that nine times out of 10, somebody who is pushing medical misinformation on social media platforms, they're doing it because they're selling supplements or they're selling some kind of other thing where, you know, they say like, oh, the vaccine is not safe. But coincidentally, you know, what is safe, this nonsense supplement that I am selling on my website. And so these people are scammers and hucksters and grifters. We, we, we've gotten to this place where we are legitimizing and mainstreaming them and having these conversations about the marketplace of ideas. When, and that gets us away from the reality that nine times out of 10, these people are just scammers. Elizabeth, Bridget, I'll just say thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is great. Thanks so much. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to my guests. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.